The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leaf, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're talking about Josephine Tay, the golden age crime writer, three of whose novels, The Franchise Affair, To Love and Be Wise and The Daughter of Time, are being reissued by Penguin. With me is Nicola Upson, herself a crime writer, whose novels feature Josephine Tay as a detective, and the latest of which, Dear Little Corpses, is out now. Nicola, welcome. Thanks, Sam. Lovely to be here. Now, I confess to my shame that when I heard these books were being reissued, I had only very dimly even heard of Josephine Tay. But I discovered that, you know, the Crime Writers Association of America, for instance, says that The Daughters of Time is the greatest crime novel ever written. Why has she faded out from under the radar in this way? It's a tricky one, that one, because Tay, I think, balances what she lacks in quantity amongst her fans. And I agree with you. She's not as well known as what lots of people would call the big four of the golden age. People like Marjorie Allingham and Agatha Christie, of course, Sayers and Nio Marsh. Part of that, I think, is to do with the, the sheer fact of her output. Sadly, Tay died in 1952 at the age of just 55. So her career as a crime writer was cut short just after she'd written that lovely clutch of six detective novels after the Second World War. So really, we only have eight Josephine Tay novels to go on, as opposed to the rather more prolific output of some of her contemporaries. But I think, and certainly actually writing my own books with her as a character, it's true to say that whilst lots of Tay fans have come to them, Lots of people reading these books for the first time weren't aware that Josephine Tay was even a real character when they first picked up the books. So I think you're right to say that she's not as well known. But I think, as I said, what what she lacks in quantity, the people who love her really love her to the point of fanaticism about these books and their willingness to champion them. Because I think she did so much that was different with the crime novel, but she didn't necessarily play the formulaic game. And and maybe that's another reason why she's not as well known. She hasn't had a TV series, for example, with her detective's name in the title, although she has had two major films made of her books. So her unwillingness, I suppose, to play the golden age game, her ability to pick up that golden age rule book that was such a feature of those interwar year books. The Decalogue. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Makes her stand out, but makes her very difficult to categorise. Yeah, I mean, I count myself among the converts. I think these books are absolutely terrific. But there's something about her, I don't know whether you capture it. To me, she reads almost like a sort of slightly crime novel Muriel Spark. You know, this kind of dry... (laughs) knowing sort of, you know, standoffish wit about them. I think that's absolutely right. And I think we'll probably come on to talk about what I admire most about her as a crime writer. But the thing that draws me to her most strongly is that I just love that voice. It's absolutely unlike anybody else's. 
her books are different from each other. She's a very unpredictable writer, but it is that wry, detached kind of observation. She has that pithy observation. She can sum up characters in a sentence or two. And yet there's also a huge warmth to her when we read it. It's impossible not to pick up The Franchise Affair or Brat Farrell or any of her most famous books and be indifferent to that voice. She strikes you as a reader as very, very good company. And I think that that was what made me want to put her into my novels, which was to get to know her better. She's somebody I would have loved to have gone out to dinner with, opened a bottle of wine and just chatted because she has that kind of ability to draw you in. But she would be quite hard to go out to dinner with, wouldn't she? Because by all accounts, she was extraordinarily private. And I mean, well, as we know, she wasn't actually Josephine Tay at all. <laughs> you know, that wasn't her given name. She shunned all publicity. And unless I'm getting this wrong, I, I read somewhere that you ended up making a character in a novel because you were trying to write a biography and discovered you couldn't find enough out about her. That's absolutely right. And my partner muttered the immortal words, oh, for God's sake, make it up. And that's how these books came about. Having said that, though, I mean, I, I first read The Franchise Affair, I suppose, about 30 years ago. And getting to love her like that and wanting to know more about her life, if you're willing to put the effort in, there is quite a lot available about her. And I think we've got to be very, very careful not to look at this too much through modern eyes because there's private and I think identity in the years that Josephine Tay was living through was a much more valuable currency, perhaps, than it is now. I mean, she would have hated the modern age of social media where you put every time you breathe, you take a photograph of your dinner and you put... She would have absolutely loathed and detested all that, I think I can quite confidently say. Having said that, though, with her theatre friends, with her friends in Inverness with different compartments of her life because she did keep them very separate. She was very, very sociable. That was something that interested me really. When I started to find out a bit more about her, I spoke to one or two of the people who had worked with her or become lifelong friends through her famous play, Richard of Bordeaux. And one of them was Sir John Gilgood. And the stories he told were about a woman who came down from Inverness, where she led a very different life, a much quieter, more ordinary life. She booked into her private club, which was the Cowdery Club for nurses and professional women in Cavendish Square. She got her furs out of storage at Debenhams. And she lived the high life and she went out to dinner. She was the toast of the West End with people who were her friends. She went on holiday with them. There's a wonderful photograph of her in the Tatler with her West End friends. And so she wasn't pathologically private. I think we've, we've got to get away from this idea that she was a complete recluse who didn't want anything to do with anybody. She loved a nice meal out and a conversation as much as anybody, but she chose very carefully when and with whom she would have those conversations. You mentioned the theatrical side of her. I mean, her ambitions initially were as a playwright, weren't they, rather than as a, a crime novelist? They were. And she did have this theatre side to her. How did it feed into what she did? Well, I think it gave her a lot of her skills as a novelist, really. Her dialogue in those books 
is quite extraordinary. You, you read that and it's pithy and it's sharp and it's realistic. And I think that was very much honed from writing for the stage. So I think that played into her work a lot. As her career developed, she started off by writing short stories and poems for various periodicals. And she wrote a couple of early novels, one of which is called Kif, which is a story of a young boy who goes off to fight in the First World War and comes home to a world that just doesn't have a place for him anymore. And it's a raw, angry, intense novel that I wish somebody would republish because it's extraordinary. I mean, it's, it is quite raw. It doesn't have any of that kind of elegance and stylistic finesse of, of her later books. But in terms of its emotion and its passion and its anger and its sense of injustice, which is something that runs through all her crime novels, it really set the path for that. And uh, she wrote another awful novel called The Expensive Halo, which is just terrible, mercifully out of print. But she... she so you've got a hit list, but yeah. mercifully she, staying out of print. Yeah, definitely yes. needs to come back yes, in. Yes, absolutely. I'm interested to read that. But then she loved the theatre. She saw Gil Good on stage and she wrote Richard of Bordeaux essentially for him. She sent it to him at the theatre. If you read when she died, she left all her estate to the National Trust. But one thing she did ask for was for her plays to be republished. And he wrote the foreword. So he talks in that about how the play needed a lot of work. And I think he quite rightly probably takes quite a lot of the credit for its finished result. But the romanticism of that play, which was a very ordinary man's version of Shakespeare's Richard II. The pacifism of that play was just at the right moment when it started in 32, 33, 34. It ran for over a year in the West End. People went 30, 40, 50 times to see it. I remember P.D. James telling me that she was a young girl at the time and she couldn't afford the train ticket to go to London to see the play that everybody was talking about. It was really that sort of momentous that you don't necessarily see so much in theatre. It was sort of more like a blockbuster film. And uh, all the, the cast did stunt flights over London and they made souvenir dolls of it. It really was a remarkable success, partly because of her words, partly because of the beauty of Gilgood's acting and Gwen Franken-Davis, who co-starred with him, but also because of the design by, by Motley, a trio of women called Motley, stage designers and costume designers. And everything just, just came together at the right moment for that play. Because it was the right moment, it's probably dated a lot more than her detective fiction has, which was always a, ahead of its time. And she never quite repeated that success on the stage. She wrote a play for Gwen Franken-Davis called Queen of Scots and another play called The Laughing Woman, both of which ran in the West End, but they didn't have that success. It's often said because she, she made the mistake of describing her crime novel to Gilgood as her yearly knitting, which I think has given a rather false impression that she valued her stage work much more. But there's a later letter that she wrote to her publisher where she says that seeing the franchise affair in the Times book club window for the first time gave her exactly the same thrill that seeing her name up in lights above the new theatre had. So I, I think she certainly loved the theatre. She loved the communal aspect of the theatre. She went to see theatre a lot. But she was very, very proud of these novels too, and rightly so. Yeah. One of the strange things about, I mean, I suppose we should talk about the Daughter of Time briefly, because that's, it seems to me to 
do two things. One of which is at the outset, there's three or four pages mercilessly mocking <laughs> you know, the entire literary scene. Because the hero, Alan Grant, has, you know, he's fallen through a trapdoor and knackered his spine or something. So he's laid up in hospital. And sort of the main thing the book's doing, it seems to me, and maybe you'll you'll expand on that, is to if not quite mock, at least set aside almost everything you expect from a crime novel so that the entire thing takes place while he's prone in a hospital bed and the crime he's investigating is through archives and various intermediaries whether or not Richard III was guilty as charged of the murder of the princess in the tower. But she's sort of mocking or having fun with the conventions of crime fiction and indeed in, in her other novels, you know, the detectives will occasionally make knowing remarks about, oh, if this was some petty dreadful <laughs> crime novel, this is what would happen next. I mean, was she a bit postmodern in that respect? Well, I suppose she was. I mean, normally we'd talk about people in glass houses not throwing stones, wouldn't we? But considering that Josephine Tay managed to break all those rules and, and write such gripping and engaging novels that didn't stick to all those different formulae of crime fiction, I think we can probably say she got away with it. But you're absolutely right. She does gently mock that through a lot of her books. I mean, To Love and Be Wise, again, another of these novels that's, that's being reissued, opens at a literary sherry party, which is the, the ghastliest affair. And then when, once we get to Solcott St Mary, the actual setting of the book, again, there are other writers and figures there that she mercilessly pokes fun at, I suspect, uh, with very good knowledge. Solcott St Mary was based loosely on Finching Field, which is where... Gilgood and many other people bought their country cottages after the success of Richard of Bordeaux. But yes, because in The Daughter of Time, which is probably her best known, I have to, have to admit now, there's always a sharp intake of breath when I say this, it's not my personal favourite amongst her books, but it certainly is a work of genius in how groundbreaking it is. I mean, nobody to my knowledge had done that before. I mean, people have done it since Colin Dexter did that trick of having the detective incapacitated. But that was that was a conscious nod, wasn't it? That was a conscious Dexter nod, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But she did it for the first time. And I have a letter that she wrote to a fan shortly before the book was published in which she says that she's delighted that the fan loves the Tay books so much, but she's got one coming out that is unlike anything that she or anyone else has written before. So I think she knew how groundbreaking that book was, but it doesn't come out of, which I think is why it succeeds, it doesn't come out of innovation for innovation's sake. You've got the very, very clever framework, but it harks back to some of the things that were closest to her heart that you see running through all her books. The theme of injustice that I mentioned earlier, that idea that somebody by history has been wronged and the raw energy of wanting to put that right, uh, the passion for history, the working out why historical events have happened and, and who's responsible, all that sort of thing she loved. She also, uh, again, it's something that comes up in these other books. There are lots of her characters and her themes are all about image, about people either not being what they appear to be or being labelled because of what they appear to be. And so I, I suppose The Daughter of Time is, is the most obvious example of that. I remember when Richard III's body was finally discovered, and I think it's Philippa Langley, isn't it, who was from the Richard III Society. She was seeing all these 
very sophisticated 3D facial reconstructions of the body they have found. And her words were something like, that's not the face of a tyrant. Well, go back 60 years. That's what Grant said from his hospital bed just by looking at a postcard. So, yeah, I think we, because some of those things are playing into our consciousness now as things we take for granted. So we shouldn't forget how innovative they were at the time. And Grant is an interesting figure. And I'd like your sort of take on him because she does have this one detective who goes through the novels. I mean, I think he's a smaller character in the franchise affair, but he's mostly at the centre of things. And he's quite you know, he doesn't have the sort of extravagant eccentricities or, or torture that that we often come to expect from series detectives. You know, he's he's self-contained, he's smart, and he's sort of almost makes me think a little bit of Megre. You know, he, he puts himself in a milieu and just sort of absorbs it all like a sponge and then you know, comes to the conclusion. And he's fallible too. I think that's one of the things we love about him. I mean, he describes himself, I think it's in A Shilling for Candles, as something like hardworking, well-meaning, ordinarily intelligent. And that's what he is. And for me, he's one of the earliest examples of a credible fictional detective. And from Alan Grant, I think you can draw a direct line to people whose names we know better, like Adam Dalgleish and Inspector Wexford. I, I think he was very much the groundwork for those characters. But you're right, he inhabits not just Scotland Yard, but he has some very well-placed theatrical friends, like his creator. And he does insert himself in, into environments, and he's a very good observer of people. He remembers things, you know, He, not in a Miss Marple way. It's not like a, a sort of St. Mary Mead with traits reminding him of somebody in the village he grew up in, nothing like that. But he's an independent, largely solitary man who does have a great empathy, I think is, is probably the word, for the people around him, whether that is his friends, his colleagues, or indeed the people he's tracking down, because there are a, a couple of books where Grant has a kind of connection with the hunted man that he's going after. He, he's very concerned with justice and injustice and getting it right. He's not flawless. He's not always right. And I think that endears us to him as well. And she does something very audacious in, in the franchise affair. She doesn't only give him a very, very small role in one of her key novels, but she puts him on the wrong side of justice. And that's a brave thing to do with your serious detective. Yeah. I mean, one aspect of him, that, or, or at least of, of the way Tay treats her world, is sometimes I'm quite surprised she's quite sort of slighting or sceptical of, you know, what Grant sometimes calls females. You know, she's she's not the sort of great feminist trailblazer. Is that a sort of nod... You know, is it a sort of in-joke when she's writing that she's she's quite often seems a tiny bit sexist? No, I think I think that's a fair comment. I don't think she was sexist. I don't think she would also describe herself as a staunch feminist. And I think it's interesting because her works don't have that kind of intellectual feminism of something like Dorothy L. Sayers' work, for example. I don't think she'd have created a character like Harriet Vane, ever. But if you look across the canvas 
of Tay's work. Her women are doers. They're very active. If you look at a book like, for example, Miss Pym Disposes, which is set in a girl's physical training college, which is a world that Tay knew very well because that was her first career. Those are extraordinary women, but she's not thumping the tub for feminism, but she is just portraying these very, very real characters as they are. And if you look someone like Marion Sharp in The Franchise Affair, and it's interesting that she wrote The Franchise Affair largely through the perspective of Robert Blair rather than Marion Sharp, because I think that would have been a very different book. But there are these sort of tongue-in-cheek references when he's getting to know Marion about her femininity and her intuition, which are very, very patronising and, and slightly mocking, as you said. But they don't come from Tay. They come from her character, Robert Blair. So I think you've got to, because she plays with the reader so much, because she manipulates us, because she shifts this sort of perspective on identity, I think you have to be very, very careful about pinning any one thing that emerges from that fiction to her as a writer or to her as a woman. Yeah. Now, tell me a bit about your own kind of relationship with Josephine Tay. I mean, as you've, you've said, you started out wanting to write a biography. Was this as, as an infatuated fan, essentially? And you <laughs> just thought, I want to know more about her. I can't have a drink with her now because she's dead. I'll write a biography. I hope it wasn't as an infatuated fan, but it was somebody who was fascinated by... Well, for a start, it was just simply on a basis of somebody who had achieved so much in two very different literary spheres hadn't had the recognition I felt she deserved, which is exactly where you came into this conversation earlier, and I wanted to do something about that. I also worked in theatre at the time, and so the fact that she was enmeshed in that romantic 1930s theatrical world made her an interesting character for me. It started for me with the franchise affair, and I think that is still something that fascinates me with Tay to this day, the fact that you can pick up that book, and on the one hand, there's this slightly wistful, wry snapshot of post-war England and Robert Blair's life as a country solicitor, But you dig deeper into that book and it's so dark and so subversive and so bleak. And the way that violence, without any murder, without any violent crime, shows how people's lives can be destroyed. And and the fact that her work could be read on different layers like that made her interesting to me. It's something that makes her interesting as a person as well as a writer because then I dig into her books and her life and I find out that she played that trick in real life a bit as well. There were some people who, reading their letters, reading the letters between Tay and various friends, there's such warmth, such affection. You know that. You know that from the voice of the novels. But somebody described her after her death, Caroline Ramsden, one of her closest friends, as a grand friend to have. And you can see that in these books. And yet, going to Inverness, I read some things that have been written by her contemporaries there. There was a a man called Hamish McPherson, who was a a neighbour of hers, who wrote a rather backhanded tribute to her on what would have been her centenary year. And in that article, he said, uh, most people have something attractive about them, but there was nothing to like about her at all. (laughs) 
And so somebody who could inspire those two different reactions in people is by their very nature an interesting person, somebody you would want to write about, somebody who works very, very well as a character in fiction, which is not necessarily, you know. If I had written, if I'd gone on to write the biography of Tay, I would have had to have been a lot more impartial than I can be in fiction, for example. I mean, there were certain traits of her personality that I don't find as appealing. She could be quite cold. She could shut people off. She could be quite dogmatic at times. You won't, I hope, find those traits in the Josephine that runs through my books. So she's she's an interesting person because she often, with, with characteristic self-awareness, she referred to herself as a chameleon. And I, I think you see that in her fiction. It's a word she uses often in her letters. And somebody like that, even without the genius of her crime novels is going to be an interesting person to write about. And how true to her have you felt obliged to be? How many liberties have you felt entitled to take or have you been quite keen to kind of knit her as closely as you can into the historical record? For instance, in in Dear Little Corpses, you have the, at least to the reader, delightful thing that she's, she suddenly sort of has a superhero team up with Marjorie Allingham. <laughs> well, that's, that's a classic example, I suppose, of, of how far I, I will go, because in real life, they never met. She never mentions meeting Marjorie, and as far as we know, speaking to, to Marjorie Allingham's biographers, there is no meeting. However, they both admired each other's work intensely. Marjorie's husband wrote her what, what an admirer of Tay's Allingham was in one of the collections of her novels that was published after Marjorie's death. Josephine, who didn't actually, it's certainly not in any of the correspondence I've read, she didn't often mention other crime writers, but she does refer to Marjorie Allingham and the character-driven nature of her books. And I think that is something they had in common. They were both writers who were intensely unpredictable, whose books were unlike anybody else. They both often wrote books in which a central murder wasn't the main point of the book. They both wrote a really important war book in their careers. Kiff, I've already mentioned Josephine Tay, and with Marjorie Allingham, she wrote The Oaken Heart, which was a a non-fiction book about the early days of war. And I think had they met in real life, that they would have got on like a house in fire, as indeed they do in Dear Little Corpses. So there is that element of of sticking to a truthful path about Tay's character and the bare facts of her life, but being perfectly happy to give that element of wish fulfilment and embellishment along the way. Yes, I haven't. I, I haven't. I'm afraid yet read your previous books in the series. But are you following the timeline? Because obviously. This one is set just as war is, is beginning, the Second War. H- have you gone chronologically or are you kind of dotting around in her life? Yes, I have. I have gone chronologically. There is a book, uh, Fear in the Sunlight, earlier in the series, which moves between 1936 and Josephine's 40th birthday to a period in 1954, by which time she has been dead for two years. And that book is all about her connection with Alfred Hitchcock, who who made his film Young and Innocent from a Shilling for Candles. But other than that, the books do work chronologically, yeah. Now, the other thing you've done, which I guess is will be regarded by some Tay fans as something of a liberty, you've decided that she was gay and you've given her a partner. 
how much do you feel is, is there a warrant for that? Well, I haven't decided that she was gay. I've decided that from the letters I've read and the interviews I've heard that her most important relationships were with women. The long-term relationship that I've given her in the books is a fiction on my part, as far as I know. Although Marta, the character, is a composite figure of lots of the women that Tay met and was close to in her life. You will have two sides of the argument of this. The only existing biography that there is of Josephine Tay paints a very straight picture, but I will believe to my dying breath that her most important relationships, her intimacies, as Sir John Gielgud called them, were with women. There was a radio programme that went out, I think in the 70s, called Gordon the Escapist, Gordon being one of her other pseudonyms. And in one of those wonderful quirks of, of luck, the producer for that show was a former colleague of my partners at the BBC. And so I've been lucky enough to hear the outtakes and the full interviews for that programme. And one of the interviews was with a lady called Marjorie Davidson. Now Marjorie and Josephine, or Elizabeth McIntosh, were lifelong friends. They went to school together. They went to Anstey Physical Training College together and they stayed in touch throughout their entire life. And the letters that Tay writes to Marjorie are completely uninhibited. They've got that lovely voice of, of the Tay novels. I mean, they were, as I said, at, at college together. And Marjorie is interviewed for, for this programme. And there is a lot said about Tay losing a lover in the First World War. And when Marjorie's asked about that, she knows of no such loss. And she follows that up by saying, some women just aren't interested in men in that way, are they? So that was a clue for me. And for somebody with whom Josephine Tay was sharing a dormitory at a training college at the time of the Somme, which is where the lover was supposed to have died, Somebody like that for not to know about that. I mean, there's a brilliantly moving letter that she wrote towards the end of her life on her father's death. And she talks to Marjorie very movingly about the mixed emotions that she has, uh, this, this kind of sense of loss, but also a sense of freedom, which becomes poignant when you realise she died, what, 18 months later herself. But she didn't feel the need to hide her feelings from Marjorie. So I take Marjorie as a key character witness. And also... The actress Gwen Franken Davis, who became a, a very close friend after Richard of Bordeaux. Who was a huge deal in her day, wasn't she? I mean, she's not so well known now, Gwen Franken Davis. No, but... I mean, Dame Gwen Franken Davis, I should say. Yeah. Yes, she was a magnetic figure on stage, not so well known in film, but certainly in the theatre of her day, she was she was huge. And Josephine Tay absolutely adored her. In fact, she she wrote Queen of Scots for her. And so Gwen was also interviewed for, for this programme and, and asked for the tape recorder to be turned off when the answer to that question came. And so to know roughly what was said when the tape recorder came off, which will appear later on in the series of books, I mean, those things build up for me into a picture where I feel perfectly justified in to giving her a gay identity within the concept of these books. And I, I've been very touched by the letters and emails I've had at various points along the series with people who, whose mother or whose aunt or grandmother, or even in some cases themselves, 
were living that sort of life in the 20s, 30s and 40s, a life of fear where they weren't able freely to love the people that they loved. And they really do identify with the the thoughts and feelings and fears that Josephine has had throughout the course of the books. Where do you think the story of the, the lost lover in the First World War came from? Probably from her, my guess would be. Gielgud repeated it. Because I think she was a woman who, she was a solitary woman. She valued her independence. She never stayed anywhere for very long. You know, She was very happy to have people's company on her terms, but for only two or three days at a time. And she had that independence. And, and I think that in the so-called surplus generation after the First World War, that was a blessing for her. I think she would never would have would have said it because, of course, she wouldn't because there was so much grief and so much loss and women's lives were changed irrevocably. But sometimes for independent women who no longer felt that pressure to marry and settle down and have children or even share their life to any extent with anybody, that was a relief. And my reading of the Josephine, the real life Josephine Tay, slightly distinguished from the fictional Josephine Tay is that's where she stood on that. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if that rumour was something convenient that that had been either assumed and she didn't argue or or even started by her herself. Because I do find various people's attempts to identify the person that this was speculative to say the least. Yeah. Now the girlfriend or lover you give her is called Marta. Alan Grant has this great running, his, his theatrical friend, the Indeed. actress, Martha is also Hallard. called Marta, Marta yes. Hallard. Is the Marta in your novels, is she Marta Hallard or is she a sort of version of Marta Hallard? No. She isn't Marta Hallard, but she is in part... It's an unusual name. <laughs> sometimes she is, I mean, Marta Hallard was in part based on Martita Hunt, the actress, Marta Van, the actress... There's a bit of Gwen Franken Davis in there as well, I think, and, and various other people that pass through Tay's life. So Marta started off by being a nod to lots of those women. She was never an actress, but a nod to lots of those women. But as fiction does, she has become very much her own character in the course of the books. So I, I think she's she's become the the sort of lover that I genuinely think in different times and under different circumstances, Josephine Tay might have chosen for herself. Which is lovely. Now, the fact that Josephine Tay comes out of the Golden Age, I mean, these things are being republished with these beautiful looking, you know, old fashioned cars on the front, sort of very art deco-y kind of look. You know, you think, oh, we're we're in cosy crime territory here. (laughs) You know, Golden Age detective writer in periods. Were you very conscious, because... I mean, certainly on the strength of the, the most recent one, you're not writing anything like cosy crime. Were you quite sort of steering away from that or the dangers of it seeming twee? I think I was more conscious of wanting to write books that are, while they are completely different from Josephine Tay's books, and I would never presume to write like her. For example, if, if she'd left a novel unfinished, I never would have tried to finish it because her voice is unique. But books that would honour a woman who kind of came out of the golden age but looked forward much more to a more character-driven psychological style of crime writing. 
And in certain of the books, I mean, To Love and Be Wise is a good example. The Franchise Affair is an even better example. Brat Farrer, which is a book which doesn't even have any policemen in, as far as I can remember. Not just not Grant, but not any policemen at all. They paved the way, I think, for more standalone psychological novels like Barbara Vine's books, for example, or P.D. James's Innocent Blood, something like that. So I did want these books to, yes, play the golden age puzzle of, of mysteries to solve, suspects to be in there, and hopefully there are sleights of hand and a surprise or two along the way. But I wanted them to be books where the characters and the setting drive the story in a way that would honour the kind of changes to the crime novel that Josephine Tay was making possible. And I think one of the most important changes that she made, and not her alone, but she had a big part in it, was to write books that made us possible to treat death as entertainment without forgetting the painful reality of crime, because her books focus very much on the aftermath of violence, on who gets hurt by the violence. In the franchise affair, you know, there is an innocent woman there who suddenly discovers that the daughter that she has adopted and raised isn't the person she thought she was. And how her life is forever changed by that is Tay's big theme in that book. And that's quite dark because she does it mercilessly. You know, you come out of what you're thinking is a, a very entertaining, warmly written book to be confronted with truths like that that don't go away. So I did want the book not to be cosy in the sense of in a cosy novel order is restored at the end because once things have changed they're changed forever and I think Tay's books recognise that Nicola Upson thank you very much indeed thank you Sam it's a pleasure <laughs>